thank you for joining us for this week's sermon. We are continuing our sermon series titled Deliverer, which is taking us through the book of Judges. Today, we will be looking at the theme of idolatry, which has plagued Israel from the beginning. Renus recasts idolatry in 21st century language by looking at it as ultimate values and addictions. He also prompts us as we look at our own lives and identify our own idols to confess and return to God, who is willing to meet us with open arms. I am going to speak about idolatry, which is like super depressing. Um, and that psalm is, um, is a good reminder. Uh, I love that line, everything that God does is effused with grace. Um, it'll be a good reminder. And we'll try and come back to that in this sermon. Let me pray, though. Um, I feel very nervous about tackling this topic, so let's pray together. God, I thank you that we can gather. Um, in this community, and the community as we gather reminds us to lift our eyes to you. That you are God. You desire to be in relationship with us. Your posture toward us is one of grace, kindness, and goodness. You desire good things in our lives. Thank you. Help us to hear these words today um, with openness. May we be open to you um, revealing things to us that are uncomfortable, that are hard, um, but that you desire to change. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen. So, you know that we, well, if you're new here, you might not know. Uh, if you're a regular part of this community, we've been walking our way through this fall through the book of Judges, which is somewhat unusual. Uh, and we come to a part in the book now where, uh, what's well, kind of the conclusion. And if you see on the slide here, the conclusion is a two-part conclusion. There's going to be a section on idolatry, which we'll talk about today, and there'll be a section on violence, which uh, I'll, pr I'll give you a little warning <laughs> next week. PG sermon, okay? Maybe maybe more than that. It's rough. Uh, I won't go into all the details. You can read them. They're there. We'll, anyway, but it's a two-part conclusion. Now, if you remember from the introduction to the book of Judges, Judges had a two-part introduction. Um, there was, uh, the, 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 the author wanted the readers, his hearers, us to hear the political situation, kind of the social political situation in the first part of that introduction. And in the second part, there was a spiritual analysis of what's going on. It mirrors in the conclusion, the idolatry is a spiritual analysis of what's going on. The violence is a social political analysis of what's going on. So the conclusion mirrors at least in, in style, in structure, the introduction. Okay? It's very deliberate what the author is doing here. Uh, and this has been uh, one of the surprises for me in the book of Judges is the deliberateness and the different types of, um, of literary devices these authors use to compile their material to help you pay attention. 
right? And you'll see the progression where Israel started out uh, socially and spiritually, and you'll see it now again as he evaluates spiritually and socially where they have landed after they've gone through all these cycles. And it's very discouraging in many ways. But let me just give a quick aside here, okay? Kind of a plug for the Bible. <laughs> um, I, I have told you that I have not loved the book of Judges. Um, that's, that's kind, diplomatic speak. I've actually despised it for most of my life um, and avoided it. And this study has been very illuminating for me. I hope it maybe has been a little bit for you. And it reminds me of this, is that the biblical authors and God's weaving of that material, how God breathes into it, um, is absolutely fantastic. And a book like Judges has been more than adequately redeemed for me. It's really come alive for me in a completely unexpected way. And it makes me think if that could happen to the book of Judges, it could probably happen to the book of Isaiah or the book of Matthew or the book of Colossians. And so I just want to sort of give a plug here for how important the Bible is and why we might actually read it from time to time. And uh, also a plug, uh, the best single best resource that I can give you that's accessible to you is the Bible Project. Um, so they've got a, a whack load of videos that introduce every book of the Bible and helps you pay attention to the structure and some of the main themes. They've got a whole s series on how to read the Bible, like how to read biblical history, how to read biblical poetry, how to read the parables of Jesus. Because um, it's a difficult book to read. I get it. The Bible is confusing. You read books like um, Habakkuk, and you're like, what in the world? You can barely pronounce his name, and then you're like, what is he talking about? And who are the Edomites, and what? And it's very, it, it seems like irrelevant, but I, I promise you it's not if you do the work, if you do some work at least. And the Bible Project is a great introductory tool to help you with that. Um, and, and it will surprise you in places, like Judges has surprised me. Uh, so just a plug to just invite you to, to read the Bible, uh, to study it, to take some time with this. It is complicated. It is at points very hard, uh, but it's worth it. There's some incredible things here if we take the time. So let's look at one of them. This is the first part of the two-part conclusion of the book of Judges. I would like to read to you the, the complete... Uh, chapter 17. It's not super long. It's like 13 verses. Um, and it's a bit of a weird story. Uh, maybe not super familiar to you, so I'd like to read it to you. Um, this part of the conclusion is actually chapters 17 and 18, and I'll talk a little bit about chapter 18 in a moment as well. But here now, Judges chapter 17, okay? It's um, a story of a guy called Micah. Now, there was a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim. And he said to his, uh, uh, sorry, let me start that again. Now a, man, now, a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, 1,100 shekels, that's a fair amount of money, um, of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse. Well, um, the silver, I, I took it. So it's a confession. He's confessing to his mom. He stole a bunch of money from her. And then his mom said, well, the Lord bless you, my son. And when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image 
overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he, returned, after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave it to a silversmith who used it to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod or the kind of that Gideon made one of those, right? Like it's this piece of clothing um, that priests use. And some household gods and he installed one of his sons as his priest. I told you it's a weird story. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Then a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who'd been living with the clan, uh, within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. And on his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. And Micah asked him, where do you come from? And he said, well, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm looking for a place to stay. And then Micah said to him, well, hey, live with me and be my father and my priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food, like free room and board, right? So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. And then Micah installed the Levite, and, um, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know, <laughs> such irony here, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since his Levite has become my priest. All right, it's an odd story um, as part of the conclusion. So now we get into a section of, of judges where we're not talking about God raised up a judge. That's sort of faded. Um, the other thing that's faded is God has completely faded from the story here. Like the word the Lord is spoken a few times by some of the characters, but what is really fascinating, and these are the kind of details you want to pay attention to, in verse 6, so you remember in the, in the judges' cycles, um, they always, it's like, that they're always introduced with, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then things fell apart, and God raised a judge, and there was some good times. And then e Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then things fall apart. Verse 6 here of chapter 17, the phrase shifts. It's a subtle shift, but it shifts. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone saw as they did fit. God isn't even referenced anymore. At least in the judges' cycles, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. There was a reference point for what evil was. It was evil in God's eyes. Now, God has faded completely from the story, and everybody just does whatever they want. There's no reference point at all in the story. And you begin to start seeing that in chapter 17. People start doing whatever they want. They, you know, they, this mom seems to think it's a good idea to make an idol. Stick it in your house and worship that idol. And then a Levite who should have been, who should have known better. These are God's chosen people to, uh, to work and, and serve in the temple or in the synagogue, in the tabernacle at the time, a tent. Uh, to represent God's presence. This guy shows up and he thinks it's a good idea to be a personal priest. Like, what Micah's doing is setting up his own religion. He's like, oh, I like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. Everyone's doing whatever they want. If you count in chapter 17 the number of commandments that are being broken, I think it's six or seven, right? He steals from his mom. He lies. Um, they make an idol. Uh, they don't respect their parents. In chapter 18, they'll murder. Um, all kinds of 
commandments are being broken in this story. They've completely, completely lost their way by this point, uh, the Israelites. Okay, because God has faded. And when God fades, what, uh, the second point that I wanted to make of chapter 17 is when God fades, idols abound. Okay, in the story, Micah makes an idol. He develops his own form of religion, as I've said. Chapter 18 actually tells a very similar story, except it goes from an individual, Micah, to a tribe, the Danites, uh, the tribe of Dan, who decide they steal the priest, actually, the Levite, and Micah's idol and say, hey, why not, instead of just being like a, a personal priest to one guy, why not be our priest with this idol? That'd be so much better, surely. Um, and they, they, so the story is a similar story, except now it's not just one person uh, doing this, it's a whole tribe. You begin to see the, the value attached to all of this in chapter 18. I'll just read one verse, actually. What happens is the Danites come in, they steal the priest, they steal the statue, the idol, and they go away. And then Micah chases them down. to want, He wants to get his idol back. Um, and the Danites turn to Micah. This is, this is brilliant. This good writing is what I'm saying. Uh, what's the matter with you, the Danites said? Why? that You've called out to our men to fight. And, and Micah replies, well, you took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? And you could see the value attached. It's highly ironic, this statement. What else do you have? Well, you have God. But God's faded. And he's placed all his value on the idol. And then when the idol gets stolen, and the irony is the whole story started with him stealing from his mom to make the idol in the first place. It's like, just catch the irony. Like, these are such good authors. Can't emphasize it enough. Uh, they really know what they're doing when they tell stories. And, and it becomes really clear that everybody's really concerned about this idol. It matters to them. And that's what they want to worship. Now, I told you it's a bit of a weird story. And I sat with it all week. Um, I've known that this theme's coming, like as I outlined this back in the summer, probably. And I haven't looked forward to this sermon, particularly. Because <laughs> um, it's on one level, it's kind of easy to dismiss this story and say, well, it's got nothing to do with us. Um, we don't actually make silver statues. Like, I have been to many of your homes and I don't recall seeing in any of them like a little Buddha statue with like candles and a shrine and a, you don't have a priest in your spare room. Um, like, I, I get it. Like, it seems weird and you're like, ah, nothing to do with me. We don't do, we, we aren't, we don't have idols. But we do as people, as humans, turn to things other than God often. And that's one definition of an idol. This is from Timothy Keller's work, and he's done some good work on this um, in his book called Counterfeit Gods. I think I've listed on the Sermons Plus. It's a very readable book, um, as many of Keller's books are. Um, and, and if you have the time, well worth looking at. He says this, an idol can be anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorb your, absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It has such a controlling passion in your heart that you spend most of your passion and your energy and your emotional and your financial resources on it without a second thought. 
Consider then how we value and pursue things in our culture like beauty, power, or influence, if you will, or control, money, achievement or success, comfort. These are things sometimes that we put a lot of stock in. And we turn to them to fill whatever longing we have to address our insecurities and our fears instead of turning to God, which is precisely what Micah is doing in the story, right? God is faded. He still has needs and longings and doubts and fears and questions. And so he puts his stock in an idol and sets it up in his house and then gets really ticked off when it gets stolen. Which is one way to determine how you, <laughs> if something is an idol in your life. What would happen if somebody steals it? So if you've put all your stock in, um, you know, security, what happens if that gets threatened? If you put all your stock in money, what happens when you lose it, when you don't have it? And that can be, it can be one of those things that reveal what the idols are. What Judges has been doing for me, and I think, I hope for you, is it's a cautionary tale. It's reminding us that the human condition back in Judges is not that different than the human condition today. And idolatry is a major theme in Judges. The Israelites continually turn. They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They turn away from God. They worship other gods, and it gets them into trouble all the time. It's a major theme in the Old Testament prophets, actually. If you don't think you're an idolater, then the Old Testament prophets really aren't going to be much, like they won't have anything to say to you because one of their main concerns is that people are turning to other things other than God. And I'm going to suggest to you that idolatry is a major issue in our lives and in our time as well. We just don't typically refer to things as idols. Uh, we talk about them as values or perhaps more negatively as addictions. Let me give two examples, okay? This all sounds a little... Let me give two examples. Two, I've drawn from two people here. I could have drawn from hundreds, but I drew only from two. Um, David Foster Wallace, the late novelist, um, not a Christian that I'm aware of, um, certainly not a conventional Christian if he is, but uh, has a great speech. Uh, it's, a, it's quite well known. It's a commencement speech that he gives at Kenyon College, wherever that is. Um, and you can look it up. I looked it up this week at, on YouTube. You can watch the whole speech or listen to it, I guess. Um, it's, it's pretty good. Um, and this is one little quote from that speech. This is what David Foster Wallace says. Here's something else that's weird, but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of, a, of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of transcendent God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. So even someone who isn't, I, that I'm, to the best of my knowledge, not a professing Christian, um, recognizes that we're worshiping people. It's what we do. And if we don't worship a transcendent being, God, Jesus, 
we'll turn our gaze somewhere else. We'll worship elsewhere. The second person I'll draw from and give you an example of how this plays out is um, James K.A. Smith, who is a, um, he's a Christian philosopher out of the um, Calvin College in the U.S., in Michigan there. Um, I like this guy quite a bit. And this is a very insightful little book, You Are What You Love. And uh, let me read you an excerpt. Okay, one of my quiet moments of parental success, and we have a few of those parents, okay? We have, he says, one of my quiet moments of parental success was the day that our oldest son, then a young teenager, asked me, hey, Dad, can you drive me to the temple? I knew what he meant immediately. We had recently had a discussion in which I tried to impress upon him that the local shopping mall is actually one of the most religious sites in town but not because of its preaching or its doctrine. No one meets you at the door of the mall and gives you their statement of faith or lists 16 things the mall believes. The mall doesn't believe anything. It isn't interested in engaging your intellect. But don't think that, but don't think that means the mall is a neutral space. And don't think that means the mall isn't religious. The mall is a religious site not because it's theological, but because it's liturgical. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or its messages, but its rituals. The mall doesn't care what you think, but it is very interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. I'll skip down a little bit, and I'll talk a little bit about how he, how he unpacks this image. The temple, like countless others now emerging around the world, offers a rich, embodied visual mode of evangelism that attracts us. This is a gospel whose power is beauty, which speaks to our deepest desires. It compels us to come, not through dire moralisms, but rather with a winsome invitation to share in this envisioned good life. Okay, and he's going to unpack it a little bit more. As we pause to reflect on some of the icons on the outside of one of the chapels, okay, so put yourself in Market Mall, and it's, he, instead of little stores, it's chapels, little chapels, okay? We are therefore invited to consider what's happening within. And the icons outside the chapels are mannequins. He talks about that, like they're, they're embodied icons. Instead of stained glass windows, we have well-dressed mannequins who tell a story, Okay, and they invite you to come within and you're invited to enter into the act of worship more properly. You're invited to taste and see. We are greeted by a welcoming acolyte who offers to shepherd us through the experience, but also has the wisdom to allow us to explore on our own if we so choose. Sometimes we enter cautiously, curiously, tentatively, making our way through the labyrinth within the labyrinth, having a vague sense of need, but unsure of how to fulfill it. And so... Um, and so we're open to surprise to that moment where the Spirit leads us to an experience we couldn't have anticipated. Having a sense of our need, we come looking for, well, we're not sure for what, but we're expectant, knowing that what we need must be here. And then we hit upon it. Combing through the racks, we find the experience and the offering that will provide or promises fulfillment. 
At other times, our worship is intentional, directed, and resolute. We've come prepared for just this moment, knowing exactly why we're here and in search of exactly for what we need. In either case, after time spent focusing and searching in what the faithful call the racks, with, newfound, uh, with the newfound holy object in our hand, we proceed to the altar that is the consummation of worship. While acolytes and other worship assistants have helped us navigate the experience, behind the altar is the priest who presides at this, uh, over this transaction. And this religion is a transaction, an exchange of exchange and communion. We are invited to worship here. We're not only invited to give, we're invited to take. We don't leave the transformative experience with just a good feeling, but rather with something concrete and tangible. The newly minted relics, as it were, which are themselves the means to a good life embodied in the icons who invited us into this moment in the first place. And so we make our sacrifice. We leave our donation, but in return get something um, that is wrapped in the colors and symbols of the saints and the seasons. Halloween, Christmas, right? Released by the priest with a benediction, we make our way out of the chapel, um, uh, not necessarily with the intention of leaving, but rather to continue contemplation and be invited into another chapel. Who could resist the tangible realities of the good life so abundantly and invitingly offered? The mall is a place of idols, is what James K. Smith is getting at. Okay, they're not like, and the trick with an idol, and this is what gets so hard, is the idols are often good things, but they've become ultimate things. We look for them to fulfill longings that only God can touch. And only God can fulfill. So when we get this craving, we feel lonely, we sometimes go shopping. Or we binge on Netflix. Or we turn to pornography. Or I don't know what else these cravings, where, where else you look, whatever your idols might be. But this is what James K. Smith is trying to get at just with the shopping mall. But he'll later on talk about the sports arena as well. Um, and, and other sort of these cultural places that we've built that people gather uh, to worship. And we don't use that language. We don't always identify what's going on. But what Foster Wallace and James K. Smith are trying to poke at is that idolatry isn't an ancient problem. It's actually a, a very real issue in our lives. Now, <laughs> I... It all sounds pretty discouraging. Um, and I, I understand that. I've thought a lot about you this week, and I've prayed for you, and I've, I'm trying to imagine what this would sound like, because many of you are just trying to get through life. Uh, you're trying to afford groceries and try to get the kids sort of doing this and that and the other thing, and you're just trying to make it through the day. And then you come to church looking to be encouraged, and instead you hear, oh, well, you probably struggle with idolatry. Um, and it feels like a real, like, pfft, significant downer. I get it, okay? I've really struggled with this this week. So let's just turn here for a moment, okay? Let's, uh, what, what Keller put, points out in the book, he, in the tail end of his book, in his conclusion, he says, look, I, the, the issue is not whether you have rival gods, but what to do about them. And let's just turn on that for a moment and say, look, what, what then could we do? And there's two things that I just want to present as uh, what I hope you will hear as good news um, on this. Okay, significantly good news. 
Uh, one is something I think that sort of requires something of us, and one is something that God is doing for you. Um, and in the book of Judges, actually in the, in the book of Scripture, in the Bible, God is always looking to dance with humanity. There's always a divine human dance. We participate. So there's a part that we participate in, and, and that is simply that we confess. That'll be the first of the two things I'm going to suggest around modern idolatry and this, this realization that we look to things to fulfill longings that only God can speak to. And the first is simply confess, is to identify our idols, to bring them to the light. And this is not easy. And it's rarely immediately obvious. And so when you came in, and if you don't have this, get it on the way out. There's a little handout here called Identifying Idols. And it's got a picture of Buddha, who you probably don't worship, and shopping bags, you might. Okay? And, and it just gives a little definition, some examples of how idols might work. Right? So if you seek approval... If this is kind of the idol that you long for, like affirmation, love, relationships, and you sort of find all of your meaning in, 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 in other humans providing that for you, your greatest nightmare is going to be rejection. That's the thing you're going to fear the most. Right? And if you're rejected and that deep, deep, deep hurt kicks in that might be an example that you know it might be just uncovering this idol the people around you will sometimes feel smothered because you are asking of them what only God can give and people aren't God and they're going to let you down actually so they're going to feel smothered and your problem uh, your problem emotion is cowardice you're going to be like afraid uh, it's just an example, okay? These aren't meant to discourage you, but on the back side of that, there's a series of questions that I invite you to take home and actually spend some time with um, to, to begin to suss this out a little bit. What are the things that I turn to that capture my attention, my imagination, my resources, my emotions, my heart? What are those things? Now, please hear me again. I'm just going to repeat myself because I really, really want you to hear me on this, okay? I'm not here to, or intending to discourage you, to point fingers like, what's wrong with you people? Bunch of idolaters. Like, that's not at all what I'm trying to say to you. I'm trying to say what Judges is saying to me. We're human. And the cycle in Judges is the cycle in my own life. And it's easy to lose sight of God. God is, we live in a culture where God is faded from view. We live in that culture. And it's easy then to get drawn into the other promises being made, whether there's a shopping mall or a sports arena or other places. Okay? I'm just saying like this is, we're all, we're all tempted in this. We, we, we all struggle with this. We all turn to things, things, temporal things, good things sometimes, but we seek to make them ultimate things. There's nothing wrong with friendship, clearly, or even buying a few things at the mall. I'm not making a critique of that. It's when those things become ultimate things, that you look to them for meaning and for satisfaction. Blaise Pascal, who is a smarter dude than me, he was a, he was a theologian and a mathematician. I'm hardly a theologian, and I'm certainly not a mathematician. But Blaise Pascal has been quoted as saying, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart. The exact quote, and I'd like to read it to you, is a little bit more, uh, a little bit more poetic. 
Here's what he says. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But there was once in man or in humanity, men and women, so he's writing a long time ago, he's writing in male language, but women, please hear this, because I'll just read it the way he's written it. So, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim, but there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite object. In other words, by God himself. And that gets reduced to, and it's not a bad statement, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart. That we've got this infinite longing and as long as we search to temporal things, Netflix and all the other things we turn to to give, satisfy some of those cravings, we will be um, disappointed. Similar to the story in Judges. They're turning, they're creating their own little religion with their own little priests and their own little statue is a train wreck. It leads to the slaughter of an entire village who's living peacefully in the town, or in their town in chapter 18. The Danites come in and just wipe them out. Um, there's lots of irony in that story. It's very tragic. But I think we, I would invite you, friends, to do the hard work, um, to do the deep work, to take some time with that handout. Uh, those questions are taken from Keller's work, Timothy Keller's work, the pastor in New York, and, and just take some time with those questions and say, well, are there things that maybe I just need to confess, I just need to identify, bring to the light, Okay, it's hard. But this now the second point that I want to bring to you uh, before you is, is, is that it's not enough just to identify our idols. We need to replace them. We need to return. Let me read to you. Um, I've read this before, but it wasn't on my horizon until actually this morning when Caleb reminded me of this text. But hear this text in Ezekiel. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurity and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and, um, and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. That ultimately the work that's needed is a God work. It's God coming in and helping, help, like we, we, we bring to God honestly what we're struggling with yeah god i i turn to this far too often okay the challenge for me here is uh, is is this is that um i and i know some of your stories not all of your stories and certainly not all of um all parts of your story if i know it but 
Um, the, the challenge is you might well be struggling and making, trying to make your way through life and just kind of put one step in front of another. But that's when idols sort of show up, actually, or at least in my experience, is when I'm struggling, when I'm tempted, when I'm tired. And then I, I'm tempted to just f reach out to something to just kind of like address my weariness, something other than God. And so we bring those things to the light. We bring them before God who is um, remarkably, graciously willing to just meet us there. Uh, that happens repeatedly in the book of Judges. Um, the story that will be more um, known to you is the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, like the son that walked away uh, and sought other idols, really, said, I don't want my relationship with the father. I want what the world's going to offer. Didn't go well. And when he returns, the father is waiting with open arms. In fact, runs to meet. And that's the picture here that I want to give you this morning. And I don't want you to walk away feeling discouraged that you struggle with idols. We all struggle with idols. There are all, all, things in all of our lives uh, that we turn to much more readily than we turn to God. Some of it uh, knowingly, some of it not. The invitation is to confess those things, to bring them to the light, and then to turn. Maybe that's the word instead of return, just to turn back to God. And you will find him waiting to embrace you and to put a new spirit in you and help you um, remove these idols from your life. What, what Ezekiel promises to the people. What Ezekiel promises to us. One way that we do this, so you've got a handout that you can take home, that's a take home for you. One way that we do this when we gather is we worship. Um, and I, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to then invite the worship team back up. And we're just going to spend some time worshiping again and just turning our eyes back to God. Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one who actually does meet us in these places of brokenness, these places of need, these places of loneliness these places of longing, these places of temptation, um, we actually are invited to look back to God. So please hear my heart. I'm not in any way trying to discourage you. This has been difficult ground for me because I struggle with this as much as you struggle with this. But what I want you to hear and, and the, the psalm that uh, Lynn had read, that God, like God's actions are infused with grace. And we see that thread. That's been the most surprising thread of all in the book of Judges is that God continually um, is involved with his people. He doesn't give up on them. Continually. Even by the end of the story, he's still seeking uh, a relationship with his people despite their struggle with idols. So know that God's posture is the same. He longs for you to return. He's waiting. Let me pray. God, I know that this is hard ground um, because uh, we do struggle with idols, actually. We turn to things, we're, 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 we're caught by things um, that seem super attractive, that promise a good life. Or we turn to things because they give us temporary, temporary um, satisfaction. 
But all the while, we're trying to fill an infinite hole with finite objects. What we need, God, is you. So God, we come. I pray that we take some time this week to um, just sit with this, return to the story and judges, sit with the questions. But at this moment, this morning, may we turn our eyes back to you. May we hear your invitation to come and worship, to be in relationship with you. Thank you that you invite us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources to help further your study throughout the week, you can go to vbchurch.ca forward slash sermons.